Hi, you're about to get smarter in just a few minutes with Curiosity Daily. From Curiosity.com, I'm Cody Goff. And I'm Ashley Hamer. Today, author Priya Parker is back to help you fix the biggest mistakes you're making in your virtual gatherings. Then you'll learn about how language can affect the amount of pain you feel and why the world's largest waterfall probably isn't what you think it is. Let's satisfy some curiosity. I don't know about you, but I am over Zoom calls, except with you, Ashley, obviously. Of course. (laughs) I'm in Zoom meetings for work. It's the only way I interact with anyone. And then I'm in Zoom meetings with friends and family at night. It's exhausting. So it's fortunate that today's guest has some tips on how to make your virtual gatherings a little more enjoyable. Priya Parker is a conflict resolution facilitator who has helped create transformative gatherings, ranging from meetings on race relations on college campuses to peace processes in the Arab world. In her book, The Art of Gathering, How We Meet and Why It Matters, she shares her secrets on how to inject more meaning into our get-togethers. We asked her, what are the biggest mistakes people make when it comes to Zoom calls? So the first is, and this is, I think, for a team or for friendship, is like, ask your purpose and ask the need. And then don't assume that Zoom is the answer to everything or that the cameras always have to be on. The second thing is what technology serves this purpose? I know therapists right now who have had kind of transformative experiences with their clients because they realize that sitting at a desk across a virtual screen is not helpful. And they are now doing, they're having their clients go for a walk and it's just a phone call. They're both on their phones, they're both walking and it's actually shifting the conversation. So don't assume everything needs to be everybody in the gallery view on video. It's also much more tiring. Like, yes, you can get cues, but I actually really prefer being able to just really listen to the language and to the words. And so only use video if it really helps. Also, if it's a bigger group, video can help because you can then navigate and see bodies with faces. But then the third is I think about time, particularly on Zoom, as like real estate. And we tend to use most of our real estate in almost presentation mode. As teams, rather than spending time figuring out how do we talk and how do we actually have a conversation or use breakout rooms or talk to each other, in part because we think it's going to go into total chaos, we kind of collapse into one person talking for 45 minutes and everyone else kind of using the chat. And so I think part of it is like, how do you think about interactive time, even virtually? And how do you move from it's a birthday party, looking at a slideshow to a birthday party, letting your guests interact, given the tools that exist? That reminds me of back when I was in the dating world, sitting in a bar or whatever was always just so much more stagnant than going for a walk, grab a cup of coffee, go for a walk. That was the best way to do it. It's really interesting. You also reminded me with all the infusing things with meaning, I just got back from paternity leave. And when I got back, Ashley scheduled a meeting that was like, Cody, welcome back meeting with exclamation points. It wasn't like catch up on what work there is to do or whatever. And when I jumped on the call, her Zoom background, she had made this like Microsoft Paint Zoom background with all my favorite things on it. There were like video game pictures on it and stuff like that. And it was like the second I jumped on, I was just like, this is awesome. I was used to not working. And all of a sudden, I was really happy that I was back at work. It was really awesome. It's such a beautiful example. I define a gathering as as anytime three or more people come together for a purpose with a beginning, middle, and end, because I'm really interested in the group. But what Ashley did for you, even though you're two people, like if we just deconstruct that for a second, it's beautiful. The, The deepest thing she did was that she saw you. She understood that you, even if it was just instinctively, that you were coming back with a new identity, right? You weren't just coming back as a worker. You were also coming back as a father. 
And part of what she created for you in that shift, in that interruption that says like, here are the photos of your favorite things. I know that you're coming back a little different. And at some level, like she didn't say this literally, but she's like, I can handle that difference. And this space can handle that difference. And we can incorporate this additional identity and we can still do this. And you are still welcome. Yeah, it was pretty nice to still feel welcome. I mean, there was a huge part of me that was terrified. Like Ashley's just going to want to tell you to stick around, you know? Aw. Yeah. Not what happened. No, I was so excited to have you back. I mean, I love Natalia, but I was very excited to have, you know, my old co-host back. But I can imagine being in your shoes. It must have been the biggest Sunday scaries ever, you know? Going on leave is terrifying. But I hope that people listening who are maybe facing the prospect of parental leave take some heart with that. Because if you've got awesome coworkers, maybe you'll be okay. I don't know. Yeah. Anyway, that was Priya Parker, a conflict resolution facilitator and author of the book, The Art of Gathering, How We Meet and Why It Matters. You can find a link to pick that up along with a link to her New York Times podcast, Together Apart, in the show notes. Does a bee sting hurt more in Spanish or English? That's not a trick question. The answer is, it depends. According to a new study from the University of Miami, bilingual people feel more pain in the language of their strongest cultural identity. So if you speak Spanish at home and are speaking Spanish when a bee stings you, you'll probably feel more pain than if you were chatting with a friend in English. It's weird, right? But here's how we know it's true. Researchers invited 80 people from around Miami, Florida to visit the lab. All of the participants spoke both Spanish and English, and they all identified as bicultural. The researchers wanted to figure out whether the psychological differences between Spanish and English would have an impact on the participants' physical and emotional experiences. Each participant came into the lab twice, and the experimenter either spoke English or Spanish to guide them through their visit. During each session, the experimenter showed the participant images that were symbolic of that language's culture, then touched a hot node to the participant's inner forearm. During the study, participants rated the pain they experienced in either Spanish or English and had monitors measuring their heart rate and other signs of stress. The researchers thought the participants would report more pain in Spanish just because of the way the language deals with descriptions of pain. But that's not what they found. Instead, people felt more pain when they spoke the language of their stronger cultural identity. The bilinguals who felt most connected to their U.S. American culture reported more pain when they were speaking English. And bilinguals who felt more connected to Hispanic culture said they felt more pain when they were speaking Spanish. And this wasn't just a matter of how well they could describe the pain in each language. Their own bodies showed more signs of pain, too. They were more likely to have sweaty palms and an increased heart rate when they were speaking the language they felt closest to. What the study shows is that not all bilinguals are created equal. Individual differences in cultural identity can influence a person's experience in the world, not just the language they speak. Pop quiz. What's the largest waterfall in the world? Well, if you're talking by flow rate, it's Inga Falls in the Congo. Tallest? That's Angel Falls in Venezuela. The widest is Cone Falls in Laos. But if you want to know the very largest waterfall in the world, you'll have to look beneath the ocean. That's where you'll find the Denmark Strait Cataract, an underwater waterfall with measurements that make the others look laughable. 
Now, if you're wondering how a waterfall can exist underwater, here's how. Underwater waterfalls are known as cascades, or cataracts, if they're really big, like this one. And they form where cold and warm water meet. The molecules in cold water don't move around much, so they stay close together and make the water denser than warm water. That makes cold water sink straight down through warm water, which creates a steady and consistent flow. The Denmark Strait Cataract sits between Greenland and Iceland in a spot that creates the perfect conditions for an underwater waterfall. The water coming from the Greenland Sea to the north is Arctic cold, literally. When it enters the warmer water in the Erminger Sea to the south, it drops more than 11,000 feet or 3,500 meters straight down which makes it three and a half times taller than the tallest terrestrial waterfall. The water flows at 175 million cubic feet, or 5 million cubic meters per second, which means it's got more than 175 times the amount of water than its heftiest rival on the surface. Sure, it is slower, since cold water falls through air much faster than it can sink through warm water, and it is, again, underwater, but does that make it any less of a waterfall? The Denmark Strait Cataract and other cataracts like it aren't just natural oddities, they're part of a delicate ecosystem. And many are essential for everyone from commercial fishing crews to the deep-sea creatures that depend on them for their constant flow of nutrients. But climate change may be coming for it. The cataract's flow is very reliant on temperature, and there's evidence that climate change is negatively affecting other underwater currents. One more reason to protect our environment, even if it's not a waterfall you're likely to see on a sightseeing trip anytime soon. Unless you're, you know, a fish. A lot of fish listen to this show. It's a little known fact. Got a big fish audience. Mm-hmm. A f- fish audience. <laughs> All right, well, let's do a quick recap of what we learned today, starting with the fact that when it comes to virtual gatherings, don't just assume that Zoom is the answer to everything. There's a lot of technology out there you can use from phones like, you know, regular telephones to chat rooms. And video isn't always helpful. Try to only use video if it really helps. And think about give and take when you're interacting with groups online. You know, that whole conversational reciprocity that we talked about earlier. Well, we also learned that an experiment in Miami showed that bilingual people experience more pain while speaking the language of the culture they more strongly identified with. Turns out a person's cultural identity sure can influence the way a person interacts with the world. Who knew? And we learned that the world's largest waterfall is the Denmark Strait Cataract. And it's located underwater between Greenland and Iceland. It's formed by the difference in temperature between the ultra-cold waters of the Greenland Sea and the warmer waters of the Erminger Sea. Right there on the ocean floor. Such wonderful things around it. What more are you looking for? Oh, I love that movie so much. (laughs) It's so good. This story, we used to have this story on the Curiosity.com website, and it would make people so mad. Do you remember this? No. What? Because... They would get really angry that it was underwater. It was just it would make certain people really mad that because they said it was clickbait because it's the largest waterfall. Well, waterfalls are not underwater. So when you go and you click, OK, what's the largest waterfall and it's underwater, you feel cheated, I guess. I don't see it that way, but many people do. Wow. Let's just say it's the world's largest cataract. Yeah, it's just not as cool. <laughs> <laughs> it's really not. It's really not. 
There aren't that many listicles like, you'll never believe the world's top 20 cataracts. Well, then people are going to be like, there aren't even eyes involved. What are you talking about? <laughs> right. Good talk. Today's stories were written by Kelsey Donk and Mike Epifani and edited by Ashley Hammer, who's the managing editor for Curiosity Daily. Script writing was by Cody Goff and Sonia Hodgen. Today's episode was produced and edited by Cody Goff. Escuchen mañana to learn something new in just a few minutes. And until then, stay curious. Thank you.